There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. With what's what appears to be left in this district, that is an incredibly steep hill to climb for Molinero to make up basically 3,300 votes with what we know to be left in this district right now. Pat Ryan, the Democrat, is in a... I, there it is. NBC News has just called it. Pat Ryan, the Democrat, has been elected to Congress in a special election from New York's 19th congressional district. He defeats Republican Mark Molinero. Our very own Steve Kornacki, the Kornackster, the Kornagerator, calling the victory last night in a bellwether special election where reproductive rights were very much on the ballot. A strong indication that, as some of us have been trying to tell y'all, the Supreme Court nuking abortion rights has shifted the midterm momentum to the Democrats. Plus, Val Demings joins me. She is now officially the Democratic nominee to take on Senator Marco Rubio in Florida. Also tonight, new reporting from The Washington Post on Trump's delay tactics as the government tried to retrieve classified documents that were improperly in his grasp. And President Biden makes good on a campaign promise. And as a result, millions of people will get badly needed student loan debt relief. We begin the readout tonight with a game changer for Democrats. Now, if you hear a giant sucking sound right now, it could be the wholesale deflation of Republicans' hopes to gain control of Congress this fall. After Tuesday's election results in New York and Florida showed that their planned red wave in the November midterms could be looking more like a a red wheeze. The biggest sign of the night, the special election in Bellwether, the Bellwether District in New York State, a Bellwether District in New York State, where Democrat Pat Ryan defeated Republican Mark Molinaro. Now, you may be asking yourself why an election in a district in upstate New York is so important. Well, it's because the Democrat, Ryan, campaigned heavily on protecting abortion rights, while the Republican, Molinaro, relied on the well-worn Republican talking points about inflation and crime. And that should have Republicans scared. Take it from big board wizard Steve Kornacki last night. I think this is the clearest. This is the strongest piece of evidence yet. And there have been other pieces of evidence in the last few weeks to suggest that the national political climate has shifted away from a Republican advantage toward a more neutral climate, a neutral climate that gives Democrats a chance, certainly at holding on to the Senate, potentially to holding on to the House of Representatives. When you get a result like this, this is not the result you would get, you would expect to see in a strongly Republican political climate. Today, Congressman-elect Pat Ryan spoke with NBC's Dasha Burns about the message from voters. I think the message is when fundamental rights and freedoms are under attack, we have to stand up, we have to fight, we have to be strong and clear. And when you do that, people rally. I mean, the issues at stake, reproductive rights, abortion access, are are fundamental rights that transcend partisanship. And we saw that in Kansas. We saw it last night here in New York. I think we're going to continue to see it. 
Ryan's district, New York's 19th, is one of several recent special elections where Democrats have overperformed. Following a loss in Texas just before the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, in the four since Dobbs, one in Nebraska, one in Minnesota, and another in New York, last night, Democrats cut into the former president's margin of victory in 2020 by at least five points. Meanwhile, in Florida, Democrats chose their fighters for two of the most consequential elections this fall. Congressman and former moderate Republican Governor Charlie Crist won the Democratic primary to challenge mini-Trump and Top Gun cosplay Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, of course, last week, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell conceded that Republicans may fail to gain control of the chamber due to candidate quality issues. And last night, one of his current flocks, Senator Marco Rubio, saw his worst nightmare come true. As Congresswoman Val Deming sealed, sailed to victory in the Florida Democratic primary over three opponents to take on Lil Marco in November. Joining me now is Jamie Harrison, chair of the Democratic National Committee. And Jamie, if I can get, get my, my, my words out today, I'm, I'm flubbing them all over the place. Talk, talk to me about the message last night, because the, the, the Ryan win seemed to be particularly salient um, he beat Molinaro, who is a much better known politician. What does it say to you? Joy, last night's election showed that across the country, voters are excited to defeat these extreme Republicans who are running for Congress. These are folks who don't believe in choice, who don't believe in reproductive freedom, who don't believe in voting rights, who, who hell, are, are against prescription drugs and helping veterans. They are extreme in every measure. And these elections have shown the last five since the Dobbs decision including what happened in Kansas, are showing that people are fed up, they're tired of it, and they're pushing back, and they're not going to be silent anymore. Do you think, do you feel like Republicans have sort of misread the landscape? Because, I mean, they're still talking about crime and inflation. Gas prices have been down for, what, like 60-some-odd days. Mitch McConnell today went out and just assailed President Biden for, cut, uh, for, for forgiving student loans, which young voters really like. Are they just misreading the landscape? They are misreading the landscape and, and Democrats are doing something that joy that we don't always do well, which is we are defining the Republicans for their extremism. But we are also out there selling about the, the issues, how we have delivered. Just look at Joe Biden on the student loan. Uh, not only did he deliver on his campaign promise, he over delivered in terms of what he's doing for the Pell Grant uh, program and those folks who receive Pell Grants. And this is just one of so many things, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the CHIPS Act, the PACT Act, Violence Against Women Act. Uh, we can go on and on and on how Democrats, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, have delivered in these two years with a 50-50 Senate, mind you, and that's on a yeah. good day, uh, and, and uh, <laughs> almost less than five-seat majority uh, in the House. I saw that shade. Uh, listen, you come from a state that got written off for many, 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 many a decade by Democrats in terms of their spending. Florida is one that you know, you, I, you and I know each other. So, you know, I've been very dubious about my former home state, Florida. <laughs> but it, should we be rethinking the, the possibilities of the statewide candidates, Val Demings uh, and Charlie Christian, in Florida? Well, I've been telling folks from the beginning, I remember talking to Val about whether or not she was going to run for governor or run for the United States Senate. Val Demings is the real deal, folks. And we need to double down and do all that we can to help her and Charlie beat back against Rubio. Think about Rubio, DeSantis, and Scott. That, that is like the triumvirate of, of despair. And we got to help Florida out. Uh, all across the country, we need to do everything that we can to help Florida out because Val Demings and Charlie Chris will be one heck of an upgrade. 
the, the, the triumvirate of despair. See, my words are all flub. Your words are on point tonight. Uh, DNC Chair Jamie Harrison, thank you very much. He came to talk tonight. Uh, let's bring in Congresswoman Val Demings, the Democratic nominee for United States Senate in Florida after her big primary victory yesterday. And uh, I, I still call you Congresswoman. And, you know, listen, congratulations uh, last night. What do you think that the message that voters are sending in choosing you, in choosing Charlie Crist out of the pack of, you know, candidates that were in each of your races. What message are you hearing in these elections? Well, Joy, it's great to be back with you. And look, I could listen to our chairman, Jamie Harrison, all night when he's talking the talk that he's talking tonight. But look, you know, we won uh, the primary, a four-way primary with 84 plus percent of the vote. I think the voters in Florida sent a strong message that they want someone who is going to fight for them. We are fighting, as my friend and former colleague John Lewis said, for the very soul of our nation. When people think it's okay to just take away a woman's constitutional rights, who's next? And so we Florida voters want a fighter. They're sick and tired of the same old politicians with the same old tired talking points, talking about what they're going to do, but leaving the majority of Florida voters out. So we're excited about last night, but we're more excited about what's going to happen in November. So we know that the, the abortion issue has changed the entire game plan. It's changed the entire game plan for Democrats. It's changed the game uh, in our, our current politics. How is that issue, do you think, going to resonate in Florida? Because I know from personal experience how difficult it is to rouse Florida voters sometimes, even in places like Broward County, where I used to live. It's a struggle. Um, how do you actually motivate voters, motivate voters of color, younger voters? Is that the issue that's going to get them to actually turn out and vote? You know, Joy, look, Florida's my home state. I was born and raised here, had opportunities to live other places, never wanted to. I wanted to stay and make Florida the state that I know it can be. I think Congressman-elect Ryan said it best. He said that choice and freedom were on the ballot. And guess what? Choice and freedom, in his words, won last night. As I traveled the state from the Panhandle down to the Keys in red and blue counties, I hear, of course, the voters talk about inflation. Of course, they talk about the price of gas and goods and services, but they always talk about constitutional rights and the what's next. And I think Justice Thomas clearly telegraphed, yeah, it's women's rights now. And people may think, well, that's not their issue, but what's next? Is it equality? Is it voting rights? Is it contraceptives? What's next? And people are scared and worried about that. And yes, it is a top issue. And look, with Charlie, Chris and me, we are here to fight for the right to choose. We're not going back. This is a fight that we're well up for. OK, I, I need to play a clip uh, for, uh, from from the, the Monday's show, Monday night show. Your name came up, uh, as did a very, very important and very wonderful celebrity. But I want to play. This was Fernan Amandi, uh, who we both know quite well. Here's Fernan and what he had to say about you guys. Val Demings is like uh, Pam Greer, you know, going up against little Marco. You know, you're going to mess with that chick. She's got to come over and kick your you know what. And Rubio is scared. That's why you see the whiny little emails. Okay, so surprise to the viewers and also potentially to the wonderful Val Demings. Joining me now is the great Pam Greer, Foxy Brown herself in the house. Uh, I can't even. Jackie Brown, Foxy Brown. I mean, come on. Uh, hey, Pam Greer. Oh, congratulations, Congresswoman. 
Val Deming, oh I'm so gosh, excited for you. Amazing. Thank you for having me on, Joy. To Joy, just throw me in the frame. Oh my Thank goodness. you. Listen, I, listen, I love everything about you except that you went to East High School because, you know, I went to Montbello in Denver, so we can talk about that later. But listen, tell me, for, for, from your point of view, because the people in your position, uh, Ms. Greer, are always important in elections because you all are motivators. People who are famous, celebrities, you guys are voices that people sometimes, they won't listen to a person on TV, they may not listen to a politician, but they will listen to you all. For you, what do you think are the most important issues that people should pay attention to in these elections coming up? particularly in this Florida election. Well, most, yeah, most people want employment. They want to feel uplifted. They want to feel like they count, they matter. And with the Democrats, we have been studying what's the electronic movement, such as the ICE, the conversion, gasoline engines to EV. I mean, you can convert your hoopty into an EV for three to $5,000 because most people cannot afford the trickle down the $60,000, $100,000 EVs. But 100 million people can. If you do that for them, now we've got an IPO. That could be the Starbucks of conversion garages, which will create employment, create your own batteries, USA made proud. And then we have the water making machines. We're losing our water. It's getting hot out there. And pretty soon they won't be able to grow our crops. So you have your water making machines for every home in America. They do it on the basis over in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. They have these containers that freeze the coils, blow warm air, creates condensation, water for the troops. Why don't we have water making machines in our homes so we don't tax the water that they grow our food with? And the solar movement. So the solar movement, the EV, the, the conversion garages, we're now creating employment. Pride, priority, USA made. That's what people want to feel like they're a part of the solution, not a part of the problems. Well, I, I want to go to you, Congresswoman, because here's the thing is that, you know, for younger people between student loan debt and climate, which I think, is, you know, what Pam Greer is talking about, that those are really important issues to young voters. What can be those offered? Really, Florida yeah. is the sunshine state. You would think that Florida would be top of, you know, would be sort of out ahead in terms of green energy. Those are really the priorities. And look, Joy, as you well know, we just passed the Inflation Reduction Act, lowering the cost of prescription drugs, lowering the cost of health care. But it is the most aggressive, historic piece of legislation to deal with climate change. We know our young voters care about that, just like as Ms. Greer indicated. They care about entrepreneurship. But think about the millions of jobs will be created just through our efforts to protect our environment. But look, my opponent, Marco Rubio, voted against the Inflation Reduction Bill. Couldn't give a win to Democrats or this administration. But let me say this. Marco Rubio sent out an email saying his campaign was a disaster. I don't agree with him on much, but I agree with him on that. He needed well, he needed money. He's a bit desperate for money, isn't it? I mean, he need big beg for it. Now, Pam Greer, I have to ask you this. How do we motivate? I mean, young people, I think, are fired up because particularly the Roe v. Wade issue, the issue of abortion has, has gotten people to focus. But it, it, what else would you say to people who say, I don't know if my vote counts? They have a future. It's not the end of the world. Tomorrow is going to come. It always has come. There's one thing that we can count on is nothing lasts forever, but the, we all move on. Our life moves on. And those people think of the future. Look at all that they've created. We yeah. have cell phones. 
We never thought we'd have cell phones. We have cars that drive themselves. We never thought of that. We have innovation. These kids, they've been playing Zoom and, and Google, you know, playing uh, games. And so they cr they're very creative. They've learned from us and they have to feel that they have a future. That's a yeah. dystopia. When you don't have hope, yep. you're going to have depression. You're going to have an entire community of tribal you know, dysphoria, just, just discourse. So yeah. we really need to sit with them and say, we can do this. Come yeah. to the table. We have to, if we don't, ha you know, we can, we drink water. We don't drink oil. Yeah. We flush Amen. with water. We don't flush with oil. We have to stay you know, grounded where we yep. come from and where we're going or we can't move forward. Well, Pam Greer, thank you for being here and surprising the wonderful Val Demings. We appreciate you both, Congresswoman <laughs> Val Demings. Congratulations. Best of luck in your race. Thank you both for being here. Okay, up next on The Readout, new reporting on how Trump's own White House counsel apparently agreed that Trump really ought to return those classified documents, and yet he did not. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. We're learning more tonight about the efforts from the National Archives to retrieve classified documents from Donald Trump after he left the White House, including that Trump's former White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, agreed at the time that the documents needed to be returned. The Washington Post is reporting on an email that the National Archives sent to Trump's lawyers in May of last year, where the agency's chief counsel wrote the following. It is also, our understanding that roughly two dozen boxes of original presidential records were kept in the residence of the White House over the course of President Trump's last year in office and have not been transferred to NARA, despite a determination by Pat Cipollone in the final days of the administration that they need to be. Cipollone had been designated by Trump as one of his representatives to the archives. It was not only it was not the only attempt by the agency's chief counsel to try to get those documents back. The Post adds that throughout the fall of 2021, National Archives attorney Gary Stern continued to urge multiple Trump advisors to help the archives get the records back, according to people familiar with the conversations. Trump only decided to give some of the documents back after Stern told Trump officials that the archives would soon have to notify Congress. And Stern told Trump advisors that he did not want to escalate and notify Congress, these people said. We just want everything back, was his message, according to one Trump advisor. Joining me now is Charles Coleman, Jr., civil rights attorney, former prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst, and Clint Watts, MSNBC national security analyst and former consultant with the FBI counterterrorism division. And Clint, I do want to start with you because it is absolutely stunning, 
everything about this report today shocked me anew. The fact that Trump was keeping vital presidential records and things with national security classifications in the residence of the White House, and then he transported them from the residence of the White House to his house in Florida and kept them for 18 months, even as Pat Cipollone was getting urgent emails saying, we need these things back. I am still stunned again. (laughs) Your thoughts? Yeah, we always say you got to keep positive control of items that are sensitive in nature, especially when you're in government. Those are always, always uh, stored under lock and seal with close supervision. Anything that would move out of a skip, that's a sensitive compartmentalized information facility. Anything that moves out of a skip that would be top secret SEI information is tracked. You would carry it in locked bags. You would have a courier system. You'd have a chain of custody. That these were floating into the residence, I think, is even more problematic because who knows who was in the residence? Uh, we we have seen over the last few years, we don't really know who was there or who was visiting and who might walk off with things or see things that should not have seen them. We also know over the last six years, a lot of people in the administration could not get sec- security clearances or were not able to get security clearances. Add to that that those all that information was taken down to Mar-a-Lago. It's particularly problematic. What I find remarkable is the National Archives knew uh, that things were missing, and they seem to have had a pretty detailed understanding of what was missing repeatedly. This kind of went on for a year and a half where they kept saying, hey, we know you got documents, give them back. They said, okay, we'll give them to you. They give some, but they still keep retaining it. I think that leads to the big question, which is why in the end did a search warrant have to turn up those last remaining documents? Clearly, somebody knew what those documents were and did not want to give them up. I'm just curious what was so important that they needed to keep them in an unsecure location down in Florida. See, right. And Charles Coleman, this is the thing that's, that, that's really bugs me about the story. The, the, the Washington Post piece identifies specifically the Kim Jong-un letter and a letter that President Obama had written to Donald Trump as things that he had in his residence. Well, that's one thing, right? But the, the things that are marked highly secret, highly sensitive— it also says that Donald Trump had a habit when he was president of having aides just bring him documents, which, as Clint just said, should have been in a skiff, in a controlled environment. Just bring them to the residence so he could review them whenever he felt mm-hmm. like it. So the fact that these things were basically not secure, even when he was president, is a problem for me. And then the fact that it took 18 months for there to be a search warrant, they let him linger with these national security documents that they knew were sensitive. Some of them could have been related to our nuclear materials. How in the world was he allowed to keep those things for 18 months? Why wasn't that search search warrant served 18 months ago? Well, Joe, I think you've asked the million dollar question. I think if there's any criticism that can go to the government in this in this instance, is that it perhaps waited too long to really get tough with Donald Trump and go in and get those documents. I think that being a former president gave him a certain benefit of the doubt, certain cachet, where you did not necessarily want to go to court and get a search warrant because, as we have now seen, since they've been forced to do that, this is uncharted water and un- un- unprecedented history that we are witnessing. And so I can understand some delay, but the delay to the extent that they did, particularly when they knew the level of doc- sensitivity around the documents that were missing, was is, is almost inexcusable. But what I will say is this, there are two positives that can be taken from today's report. And they are, number one, they box Donald Trump in in as much as they take away two of his biggest defenses that he likes to rely on. Number one, ignorance, i.e., I didn't know that this was something that I was doing, or intent, yes. meaning I thought that this wasn't necessarily a bad thing. 
He cannot say that around this narrative because it has come out that not only he had been aware of Pap Cipollone and other people in his camp had been told that he needed to return these things. So I see that as a positive. The other sort of positive very quickly is that it also disrupts this current narrative that they tried to basically paint in the court of public opinion. Oh, we, they caught us by surprise. They basically showed up and ransacked Mar-a-Lago to right. come in and take these documents. No, you've known about this for a long time and you had ample opportunity to arrange a peaceful transfer of these documents back to their rightful owners and you chose not to do it. So I think that this disrupts that narrative entirely. And, and right, exactly. Let me just read a couple more things from this. From the, for, for those of you who didn't read the story today, people familiar with the episode said that Trump he himself oversaw the process of packing the 15 boxes that were given back to the National Archives in January and did so with great secrecy, declining to show some items even to his top aides. One more note, one more thing. In Trump's inner circle, concern has been rising since June that the former president has created legal jeopardy for himself, according to multiple people in this orbit. Clint, the, the the fact that Trump was allowed to review the things that were going back, the fact that he had custody of them so long and still was allowed to be a part of the process of looking at what was sent back to me seems completely irregular, completely destructive to our national security. Does that seem that way to you? It does. It also undermines another argument, which is the need for a filter team. It sounds like President Trump was already filtering the documents. Why wouldn't he pick out documents that were unique to him? That doesn't make any sense either. So big picture, I I think what I'm concerned about most, Joy, is these were in unsecure environments and everyone has a cell phone in the modern era. So just imagine all of this period with these classified documents, sensitive documents. We really have no way of knowing, at least at at this point, who has those documents, where they've gone. I'm not saying that pictures were taken and things were transferred. But wow, this is something that just would never happen when you're having it in a controlled environment the way it's supposed to be taken care of. So when you look at it now, uh, President Trump is directly involved in it. He had lots of knowledge in each step of this. His lawyers were aware and seemed to be aware of the jeopardy he was in. And then it really brings up that last point, which is what is the source of what was remaining? It sounds like there definitely was an informant and there were people that were concerned around those documents down there. Yeah, and that that leads you to wonder, well, what is in those documents? And by the way, you said the exact thing I was thinking. Pictures taken, copies made. We don't know. He had 18 months to make copies if he wanted to. That is terrifying. It should scare every American. Charles Coleman, Clint Watts, thank you both very much. Still ahead, a game changer from the Biden administration with a big announcement today on student loan debt relief. Stay with us. One years ago, in 1971, the 26th Amendment was ratified. It lowered the voting age of U.S. citizens from 21 to 18. Now, this dramatic change, which enfranchised nearly 11 million young Americans, was the result of a decades-long campaign dating back to World War II, when the slogan, old enough to fight, old enough to vote, was born. The phrase was later adopted by student activists during the Vietnam War. You see, you could fight for your country, you could die for your country, but you couldn't vote for or against the politicians who'd send you to war. It didn't make sense. Something President Dwight D. Eisenhower, a five-star general and the supreme allied commander in Europe during the Second World War, raised in his 1954 State of the Union address. For years, our citizens between the ages of 18 and 21 have, in time of peril, been summoned to fight for America. They should participate in the political process that produces this fateful summons. I urge the Congress to propose to the states 
a constitutional amendment permitting citizens to vote when they reach the age of 18. The movement to lower the voting age began to gain traction, and those efforts paid off when in 1971, the 26th Amendment was ratified in 100 days, faster than any other amendment. It was President Nixon, Eisenhower's vice president at the time of that 1954 address, who got to host the signing ceremony at the White House, taking the unprecedented step of inviting three 18-year-olds to sign the new amendment as well. There you have it historical footage that proves that there was a time when Republicans wanted more Americans to vote. President Nixon's campaign even directly targeted these new young voters to support his reelection, which served him well when Republicans would win 52 percent of the youth vote in the 1972 presidential election. You could say young people played a role in Nixon winning by a landslide, which makes the cheating that he did in the Watergate scandal all the more ironic and unnecessary. But I tell you all of this to give you a statistic that is relevant to today. Namely this, back in 1972, when those same young people were entering college, the average cost for enrollment was about $1,500 for a public college and about $3,000 for a private one. Now, of course, there's a wide range of college costs, but today's tuition and fees are nowhere near that. Try a whopping 21,000 to 48,000 per year on average. Talk about inflation. Which is why, once again, young voters are thrust into the center of a searing debate, with President Biden announcing his student loan forgiveness plan just months before another election. Now, you can say it was a promise is kept, but not everyone agrees that it's a great idea. The student loan debate and what it's really about is next. Stay with us. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Today, President Biden took steps for checking off a major campaign promise to America's youngest voters who voted for him overwhelmingly in 2020, announcing that the administration will cancel up to $10,000 in federal student loan debt and up to $20,000 for those who went to college using Pell Grants, all for people earning less than $125,000 a year. The administration also extended the pause on student loan repayments until January. According to the Department of Education, 45 million people have federal student loans, and more than half of them, half of them, owe less than $20,000. A recent poll asked voters 18 to 34 what they thought about debt cancellation, and 71% said they support wide-scale loan cancellation. That includes 56% of Republicans and 66% of independents. Congressional Republicans, who were more than happy to sign off on a $1.9 trillion tax cut for corporations, were, they were not amused. And like most things these days, legal challenges are expected. But for a lot of the youngs, today was a good day. 
Joining me now, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts, a member of the House Financial Services Committee. And Congresswoman, you know, just if you isolate just black families alone, um, this is cut to for my producers, black families with loan debt, 30 percent of them, white families with loan debt, if you just isolate them, 20 percent do. Hispanic families with loan debt, 14 percent have this loan debt. It is actually a big deal particularly for families of color. Um, do you think that this winds up redounding to the political benefit of Democrats in the fall? And do you think that's why Biden did it? Uh, Democrats win when we deliver and when people can feel uh, the transformative impact, the meaningful impact, the day-to-day impact of our policies and our advocacy uh, on their behalf. And this is transformative. Uh, this is an unprecedented step Uh, to alleviate the burden that people are feeling uh, to the tune of a $2 trillion crisis. And while I know we've been very focused uh, in your most recent uh, clip there, uh, Joy, about the the benefit to young people, uh, this is affecting uh, people from every every walk of life. Uh, And the fact that uh, 23 million people will have their debt reduced in half, uh, 20 million people uh, will have their debt canceled outright, Uh, one in four Black borrowers their debt will be gone. So this is transformative. They will feel the impact of this. And this is sound policy in that it is an economic justice issue and a racial justice issue and a gender justice issue. And that two thirds of this debt uh, is bore by women. And it is good politics. It's good policy and good politics. Oh, so now we have to get to the counterpoint, because I want you to I want you to hear some of the what people are saying on the other side. Um, now, we know that this was a big policy of uh, Bernie Sanders, of Bernie Sanders. And it was why a lot of young people liked him. And it was something that President Biden adopted. Nina Turner, who was a big supporter of Bernie Sanders, she tweeted, more should be done. Why stop at 10,000? Why stop at 20? Cancel all student debt. What do you say to people who say it's not enough? Joy, I have to just acknowledge where we started. When the issue of student debt cancellation was introduced into the national discourse, people really sought to marginalize the issue. And many thought that student debt cancellation was something that would be regressive in impact. There was a harmful and false narrative that would only benefit white graduate students who went to prestigious or affluent institutions. And of course, that is not true. Uh, This is about educators who have sleepless nights because they can't meet the monthly minimums and pay for childcare, who took on this debt because they want to educate our babies. This is about 76-year-olds in my district, Joy, on fixed incomes, uh, still paying student loans, who fear that they're going to die, still paying on these loans. At this point, uh, they owe more than they took out. Uh, 85% of students have no, Black students have no choice but to take out loans, five times more likely to default I was one of those students. That is not abstract for me. I struggled to pay off my loans, and I have, and I want better for the next generation. Joy, we know we have to address the root causes when it comes to affordability of higher education. We've got to make that investment in the public good that it is. We need to invest in tuition-free community college. We need to address, uh, invest in HBCUs, and we need to expand Pell Grants. Um, but this is impactful. This is a bold step in the right direction. It is transformative, and it will be, pay- it will be felt. And, and I have very little time left, but there is the other argument, too. I mean, Rick Scott, who is worth $259 million and did tweet this from a yacht uh, off the course of Italy, but also The Washington Post, who said the loan forgiveness decision, they thought it was bad. Widely canceling student debt is regressive. It takes money from the broader tax base, mostly made up of workers who did not go to college to subsidize education debt for people with valuable degrees. What do you say to people who say that? Wow. They are really disconnected. 
uh, from the lived experiences and hardship of everyday people. There's a reason why we were able to get organized labor behind this from AFL-CIO to AFT to NEA, civil rights groups like the NAACP uh, and many other uh, groups that have worked with us on this because this, this is a burdensome issue. This is no handout. Uh, our colleagues across the aisle don't know what a hand up looks like. That's why they didn't want a child tax credit. That's why they didn't want to give life-saving health care uh, to veterans. That's why they didn't want to give stimulus checks to people in the midst of a pandemic or make sure they remain safely housed. Uh, Democrats are connected to the pain that everyday people are experiencing, and we are doing something about it, which is why we passed the Inflation Reduction Act, and which is why um, today yep. this uh, unprecedented step by President Biden heeding our calls. Joy, this has been two years yep. of blood, sweat, and tears, and you will not break my soul. Yeah, it, there, well, there, and quoting Beyonce, too, while she's doing uh, the great Ayanna <laughs> Presley, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. All right. Let's bring in uh, for some counterpoint former Republican Congressman Carlos Corbello, who is now an MSNBC political analyst. You heard what the congresswoman had to say. Uh, what would be your answer? Joy, good evening. I certainly understand the perspective. For me, uh, the biggest issue with uh, this decision is that it's going to encourage more young people to get into this system where they are paying colleges and universities a lot more uh, than the product that they're getting back. I mean, this is the fundamental problem here, right? That colleges and universities are charging absurd amounts uh, for these degrees that really aren't worth what they're charging. And the government, all of us taxpayers are part of this scheme. And now this is gonna create the expectation for a lot of young people who have to decide now, how much should I take out in student loans? Well. Maybe this is all going to be forgiven in the future, or maybe a, a portion of it will be forgiven. So we're really sucking more people into a system that has failed young people and students for quite a few decades now. That's, I, I, to you, me, the biggest problem. I don't think I understand your argument, because if what you're saying is that college is very unaffordable based on what you're able to get back in income afterwards, then how can you argue that it's not a good idea to relieve the debt that's been built up? Because it also sounds like you're arguing more young people shouldn't go to college, which also doesn't seem like a pretty strong argument, a very strong argument. But let me ask you, Joy, where's the accountability here? If the colleges and universities are overcharging, why aren't they refunding these students this money. Why do they get to keep the money? Why do American taxpayers have to subsidize this broken system? And that's the problem with this decision that we're just encouraging. We're further encouraging this system because now we're going to create an expectation that, hey, it doesn't matter how much you take out in loans and pay X or Y college or university because you know, in the future, we're just going to forgive 10 Did or 15 or $20,000. Don't you see mm -hmm. the moral hazard there? We're feeding a system. And by the way, you know, the people who get paid at these colleges and universities, they make a good amount of money. They have great pension systems. I mean, I, why aren't they giving some of this money back? Why are I, I, we I taught I, I taught at a couple at a couple of colleges. I can tell you, college professors are not, and my mother was a college professor. They ain't getting rich doing that. But let me ask you this question. Did you feel the same way about the PPP system? Because uh, under the former president, uh, Donald Trump, uh, billions, trillions of dollars was given away to big corporations, to the airline industry. Uh, there was also a huge giveaway to farmers to subsidize them because uh, the president was concerned about losing the rural vote. We're talking about giving away billions and billions and billions of dollars to big corporations, to big farms, uh, big agriculture. Did you oppose that? 
yeah, that program was deeply flawed. And by the way, the fact that a lot of wealthy families, a lot of retirees who really didn't need it, my parents, for example, they're not wealthy, but they're okay. I mean, they have social security. They have, um, you know, my dad has a pension. He got checks from the government during COVID. They didn't need it. But didn't he need them? All, okay. all, all these programs, Joy, they create more inflation. And by the way, for Democrats who are on a little bit of a win streak here and building some momentum, now they take this, they make this decision that is going to create more inflation, more demand for goods, because it's basically well, a... We, neither of us are economists, and there are sort of people on both sides of that. But I do have to ask you a question, because you are from Florida, and I lived in Florida, so i got to ask you a Florida question. I need to play for you the current governor. I'm a little bit of a different turn here. Here's the current governor of your state. Take a look. I'm just sick of seeing him. I know he says he's going to retire. Someone needs to grab that little elf and chuck him across the Potomac. Is that appropriate? I don't think so, Joy. And I mean, that's the culture that Donald Trump has promoted inside the Republican Party and to some degree in this country. And, and that's regrettable. You know, that kind of rhetoric. I, I know why the governor's doing it. He wants to signal to the Trump base that he's with them and that, uh, you know, he's one of them. But I, I just yeah. that's not my style. Never has been. I don't think it's appropriate. Carlos Cabello, I, I love that we can end on a note of agreement. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. Always appreciate you. Please come back. All right. Thank you very much, Carlos Cabello. We're back after this. Exactly three months after a gunman murdered 19 students and two teachers at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, the Texas School Board is meeting right now to decide whether to fire the school's police chief, Pete Arredondo. Arredondo, you may remember, was leading the charge that day as hundreds of heavily armed officers rushed to the scene in a matter of minutes, but waited for more than an hour before entering the fourth grade classroom where the shooter was, while children inside repeatedly, repeatedly called 911 begging for help. Just moments ago, members of the community gave emotional public remarks before the board went behind closed doors to make their decision. Our babies are dead. Our teachers are dead. Our parents are dead. The least y'all can do is show us the respect to do this in the public. You guys don't care squat about these families. You don't care squat about these families. If it was one of your children, Heads would be rolling right now, but because it's now, you don't care. I have messages for Pete Arredondo and all the law enforcement that were there that day. Turn in your badge and step down. You don't deserve to wear one. Hmm. Joining me now from Uvalde is NBC News correspondent Priscilla Thompson. Oh, that is heartbreaking. Um, Priscilla, what are you hearing from parents? I know that they're meeting behind closed doors right now, but what are parents telling you? Yeah, Joy, they've been meeting behind closed doors for over an hour here. And we actually just heard one uh, community member get on the microphone while the board members were not in there and say they need to quit wasting our time. Come out and tell us what the decision is going to be so that we can all go home. And so the frustration and the tension has been growing over this past hour. You played that sound from when the public comment began. Around five people were allowed uh, to speak during that public comment, each for about a minute. And it was very emotional. There was a lot of anger, of course, continuing to call for the chief to be fired and also going a step uh, further and saying that this should not be happening behind closed doors. It should be done 
publicly. And before they went into that closed door session, uh, the board said that they had received this letter from uh, Pete Arredondo's attorney and they needed to review that with their attorneys. And I want to talk about this. It is a 17 page statement that was released. And I want to quote part of it saying Chief Arredondo will not participate in his own illegal and unconstitutional public lynching. Uh, his attorney is saying that this is a violation of his constitutional right to due process. Uh, and they are clearly not happy about the way this is going at all, uh, going so far as to say that Pete Arredondo did everything he could in this situation, uh, anything that a reasonable officer would, and saying that more lives may have been lost had uh, they engaged the shooter more and possibly led to a firefight in the hallway with bullets going through other classrooms. So, so much being said in this 17-page statement, though most notably uh, calling for the police chief to be reinstated with back pay and benefits, something that none of the families that we've spoken to or heard from tonight would like to see happen at all. They want his badge turned in immediately. School here is expected to start in less than two weeks. And parents are saying they are not going to send their students back here, uh, especially if Chief Arredondo remains in this position of power. So still a lot of anger and now even more uncertainty. Uh, just to sort of give you some context, the board actually was scheduled to meet about firing the chief last month. And that was postponed because uh, Arredondo's attorney was alleging that this was a violation of his constitutional rights. And now we're hearing with this new letter that there is the potential that they could delay this decision once again, something that certainly would not bode well for all of the people who turned out today to express their concerns. Joy. Wow. Wow. Uh, Priscilla Thompson, that, that is excellent reporting. Thank you very much. What a letter. Um, thank you very much. Um, appreciate that. And that is tonight's readout. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.